up here uh, with you on, once more. Um, I see many familiar faces, but there are always some that are uh, either less known or visiting here. Uh, and so I wanted to say a little bit about myself. I'm, I usually don't like to talk about myself, but it's sometimes helpful to know who, who is talking to you. Um, so my name is Patrick Egan. My day job, I'm the dean of an upper school, a classical Christian school in South County. Uh, so I lead the faculty there, and I teach some history classes as well. Um, I also, once a month, travel up to Chicago, and I teach at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School's extension campus there. And I work with inner-city pastors, usually African-American pastors, who are receiving ministry training up there. And so I teach New Testament, hermeneutics, those kinds of things. I also teach distance learning through a school in the UK, King's Evangelical Divinity School, and I also do New Testament stuff there. So as a person who believes in justification by faith, apart from works, I think I'm doing too much work, and so there's an, an inconsistency there in my lifestyle. Uh, but that, that gives you a sense of, of who I am and, and what I do. I think the biggest uh, part of who I am is, is sitting in that row there. My family, uh, that's what I'm most invested in on a daily basis, is caring for, for them and, and um, that ministry there. So today's passage comes right on the heels of the passage that Wayne preached last week. And, and Wayne, I want to thank you for your sermon last week and for your ministry. I know that many people are blessed by it. Um, praise the Lord, indeed. So in Wayne's passage, Jesus had crossed the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, and he had left the crowds after having fed them. He fed the 5,000 and was escaping from them to go to the other side with his disciples. And that's where our passage picks up today. And part of that background that I've been exploring myself is, is just thinking about Jesus as a teacher, that uh, he himself was a learner. Uh, he learned at the, the feet of John the Baptist, and it was after a lengthy time of being a learner that he became a teacher. And I, I find these ideas very fascinating, that um, Jesus, who knows all of the wisdom of God, became incarnate, humbled himself to be a learner, that he sat under the feet of wise people and um, took that position of lowliness and then ultimately became a teacher as well. That there's something about God as an educator that is worth consideration, that he desires to express himself to us through words, and that he treats us as learners, that we can know the mind of God. We can know the things that he has revealed to us. And this is both a humbling thing, that we are eternally learners, but also a very empowering thing, that uh, he has disclosed himself to us. He has entrusted us with this knowledge. So Jesus is a teacher, and as a teacher, he has these crowds that come to him, and he has to do all of these logistics. Uh, so he will often set 
set up a, a teaching session with these crowds on the side of a mountain, which is kind of like an amphitheater where they can all sit, and he can sit centrally or stand centrally and teach to the crowds. Or we'll see him in other moments by the seaside, and he, he might be on the shore or have rowed out in a boat, and the, the terrain is such that the crowds can all sit, see, and hear the teacher as he teaches. He also gives consideration to their physical needs, so he has to feed these crowds. They've come out to listen to his teaching, and so he breaks the bread for them, and he meets their physical needs. He really gives one mode of teaching to these crowds. It's very monodirectional. They're lectures, they're parables. The crowd isn't often asking him questions. He often saves that for the more intimate group, the disciples that travel with him. And we see in these passages leading up to ours, he's taught the crowds, and then he gets away from them and and teaches his disciples more one-on-one. And they can ask him questions, and he can go to a deeper level with them in that more intimate study group that he has with them. Now, the crowds love Jesus. They're kind of like the paparazzi. Wherever he's rumored to be, the crowds will flock to him. He, I don't know if any of you have seen those apps that let you know where the stars are in the city and people go, oh, we need to go see this star and they go to get the selfies with him. Well, that was kind of what was going on around Jesus. He was renowned for the signs that he did and the excitement of his teaching and the work that he did. And so crowds flocked to him wherever he was rumored to be. And our passage begins with this moment. So the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, and they got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. They want more of Jesus. And um, this, this is something that Jesus starts to respond to. Why are you seeking me? Why are the people coming to him? And so Jesus challenges their thinking about their crowd mentality, about why they are flocking to him. So we see in verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Not knowing how he got there. They just heard the rumor that he was there and they flocked there. And so Jesus answers them and he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, You are not seeking me, uh, or you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So he starts challenging their thinking. Why are you here? Is it because I fed you and you want more? Are you seeking signs? There are marvelous things that Jesus does. Is that what they're there for? Or are they actually there for Jesus himself? This challenge of their thinking is part of what's going on here. So the crowd says, uh, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They're open to Jesus' direction in their life. But what is it? They need to do. 
And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to them, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're looking for signs, aren't they? What kind of wonders are you going to do that will amaze us? The crowd is here. Perform. We want to see these wonderful things. Now, semiotics is the study of signs. Uh, We see signs. our, Our language is signs. We have 26 letters in our alphabet. These are all symbols that boys and girls learn how to read. They can see them. They're abstract. They mean nothing in and of themselves. But when you combine them together, they make words, and those words are meaningful to us, and we, we read. But there are other signs that aren't language, like uh, on your drive here, I'm sure you saw signs that you interpreted properly because you made it here safely. So the red light, for instance, there's no words telling you stop, but when you see that red light, you stop. You understand the background enough of that symbol that you interpreted it properly and obeyed it. Imagine if we didn't teach our children what red lights were. There'd be chaos in our streets. And so semiotics is all about this. We are all semiotists. We're all interpreting these signs around us, whether we're reading a novel or looking at street signs. And Jesus now needs to take on that role, to teach them how to read properly the signs that are right in front of them. And he himself is the sign, but he's going to use some interesting language here to help convey who he truly is and what it is they're actually seeing. They want to see certain things. They want to see the wonderful, magical kinds of things that he's reputed to do. But he needs to teach them to properly interpret the sign that they're seeing. And so he tells them, Jesus then said to them, verse 32, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So he's giving them some language to help them understand some differences between what they think they know about what happened in the wilderness, the manna, and who the source really is. That's from heaven. That's stuff God provided. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. It's he. It's a person. It's a person sent from heaven. That bread in the wilderness was just substance on the ground. They were able to eat it and receive nourishment for that day, but they couldn't collect it and save it. If you recall, what happens if they try to save it is it it deteriorates. It goes bad. It's not edible anymore. They were only supposed to take what they could, what they needed for that day's nourishment and leave the rest behind in faith that tomorrow there'd be more. That was an inferior bread. It was a great bread. It was wonderful. It was one of the signs, the miraculous things that God did for his people. And yet there's a greater bread that God has. This is merely a shadow of the bread to come. And that bread is actually a person, God incarnate. Now, as we look back on this, the he who is sent from heaven 
we know who John is talking about. We have all of the advantages of years of interpretation, the creeds that tell us what good theology is. We know our Trinitarian theology. We know the hypostatic union, that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. But think about how radical this idea is that God himself would incarnate himself as a person. There's some really interesting things going on here. And so he's using this language of bread to try to convey something of what's going on in the incarnation, about who he is. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread. We want this bread. If it's better than manna, we want some. All right, great. Well, in order to understand this, I'd like to take us to some things that are fairly mind-stretching. I mean, we're talking about metaphysical, multi-dimensional things here. Uh, I, one of the cool things about mathematics is we can actually get beyond three dimensions. When you think of Euclid, for instance, creating the line, and how do you get two dimensions? You do a right angle off of that line. How do you get three dimensions? You do right angles off of that. Now you have a cube, three-dimensional space. That's what we live in. Now do a right angle off of all of that, and you're in the fourth dimension. I don't know how many of you have read uh, Madeline Lingle's um, A Wrinkle in Time. Oh, it's such a wonderful book. Put it in the hands of your middle school children. It's great. And Meg, the protagonist of this, is being taught fourth dimension by Mrs. What's-It. And for a moment, in that teaching, it's, it's obscurely on the tip of her brain. Like, I barely understood that, and then it's gone. Like, our ability to comprehend a dimension beyond three dimensions is hard for us because that's not our experience. So imagine a God of inf- infinitude, infinite dimensions, infinite expanse, so far beyond our comprehension, incomprehensible, invisible. We can't hear him. We can't see him. He's a still, small voice that's so subtle in our hearts that if we're too noisy, we miss it. This is the God, the the magnitude of the God that we're dealing with. And so, when this God incarnates, there is something magical, multidimensional, metaphysical beyond our understanding. And so it makes sense that he uses something very tangible and substantial to try to help us understand what's going on here. So bread is what he gives us to understand this. This is, uh, this is amazing stuff, isn't it? What he has done in the incarnation. As we ask ourselves, what is our response that he would do this? And our response is thanksgiving. Um, I, one of the ways I've, I've pictured this is uh, with my daughter, um, my second daughter, who's at, at Wheaton College. She's studying English and art. And her art is so wonderful. She, she does these paintings and these drawings. And this is two-dimensional stuff. And she is a three-dimensional author of this, this world, 
that she created. And these beings that she creates are inanimate, obviously, and they can't think. But if they could, they, they wouldn't be able to see and perceive this author. What if Shannon could just incarnate herself in two-dimensional space? What wonder, what gratitude at being created by this artist would they feel? And how much more we in three dimensions to look at this God who's created us and redeemed us. That thanksgiving, oh, wow, yes. The Greek word for thanksgiving is eucharistos. We get the English word eucharist from this. The bread of heaven that when we partake of will feed us for all eternity. Jesus says, uh, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. There's something nourishing about us every week, communing with God in Christ. We come forward in our need, in our fallenness, in our brokenness, needing to re-up on this food, this eternal food that will nourish us. And so every week we get to partake of that. And it's so hard to think of what's going on there, this infinite God touching us in this moment, entering into our space and blessing us as we commune with him. So as we think about coming forward to the table, we can have these ideas in mind, who Jesus is. We come to him in faith, knowing obscurely it's on the tip of our brain of what's happened in the Incarnation. But he came to die for our salvation, the one-time sacrifice for our sins. And then we come forward to him on a weekly basis to partake in him. Looking forward to the time when we have that eternal communion with him. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your goodness towards us. That in the fullness of time, you revealed yourself to us in your Son. Lord, help us to learn each and every day more of what this means in our lives. Help us to learn our own weakness and neediness to cling to the cross. Lord, thank you for giving us this spiritual bread. And may we, as, as we prepare to partake in it, uh, cleanse our thoughts and our minds through the power and the work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.